Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear Sunday's sermon, along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. We are in the midst of my least favorite season. I'm not talking about fall, for I love its cooler temperatures and the changing leaves and the hope that this fall, 10 years after we planted a burning bush in our backyard, that it might finally live up to its name. (laughs) Now, the season that I'm speaking of occurs every other year in our country and happens in spring, summer, and fall, the time when we are inundated with political commercials. That period of time when we can't watch television or listen to the radio or even check messages on our cell phone without some advertisement for one candidate that often denigrates another. The thing that I really dislike about them, aside from their constant interruption of what we are otherwise doing, is what is often a very mean tone and a parsing of the truth. It doesn't seem to happen very often that we see commercials in which a candidate simply presents her or his credentials or view along with encouraging us to vote, as instead so many of them then offer this negative assessment of that candidate's opponent, which of course leads to response in another commercial to follow. Even those little footnotes that sometimes appear on the screen underneath the charge, citing the speech or the congressional record or some newspaper article supporting the accusation don't really help me much. For I tend to view most of those kinds of commercials as simply wanting to evoke a response and not simply to garner our vote. But rather, at times, they seem only wanting to lift up the anger or fear or uncertainty that is already present in the electorate. And I have come to think that the people who spoke to Jesus on a day long ago had the same goal in mind. We are introduced to them at the very start of our passage when Luke says that at that very time there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This encounter occurs during an extended period of teaching by Jesus, and just prior to our text, he had encouraged when possible to settle a dispute before going to court. And then it's immediately after that that he tells of these individuals who come and speak of this horrific act of violence against Jews carried out with the consent of Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect or governor of Judea. Upon hearing that word, 
Jesus chooses to take the news and use it for a teaching opportunity. As he says, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? He's really giving voice to a question that still comes up with people of wondering if their own hardship is somehow an act of punishment from God. Jesus goes on to speak of an event that would have been widely known for his audience, recalling a time when Pilate was having this aqueduct built in Jerusalem and paid for it, not with governmental funds, but with money stolen from the temple treasury. As he says, over those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders? than all the others living in Jerusalem. And in Jesus' time, it was commonly assumed among Jews, and particularly among Jewish leadership, that those deaths were a sign of divine retribution. In lifting up both of those kinds of suffering, the ones brought about by other people, like the relentless gun violence in Philadelphia, or the kind of suffering brought on by natural circumstances, like what the hurricane just did in the Caribbean, in Florida. Jesus is asking that question, do you think this is God's punishment? And he clearly answers no. That is not what God does. And when suffering occurs in our lives, it is not somehow a sign of divine displeasure with us. He then, though, goes on to say, in both cases, but I tell you, unless you repent, the same will happen to you. He follows up with a parable, beautifully and creatively recalled by our children a few minutes ago, that speaks of this fig tree that is not bearing fruit. And it seems as if Jesus' point in that story as well was a whole issue of judgment. And thus most scholars think that the unifying thread in all of what Jesus said in that moment had to do somehow with the call for human repentance. And I believe that to have been the case. And yet I was really struck in some of my reading by an idea proposed by one scholar who said that the news that was brought to Jesus on that day was not, in fact, a factual account, but a rumor. Now, certainly the way Luke portrays it suggests that it would happen just as described. This horrific moment when some Jews are killed by Roman soldiers in the very moment they're offering their sacrifice to God. And it might well have happened just as Luke recounts. And yet the reason that we're not really sure is that it's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels, nor by any secular historians of that era. There's Josephus, for instance, a well-known first century historian who does tell of other times of massacre of Jews at the hands of Pilate, but no mention of this incident doesn't mean it didn't happen, of course, but at least raises the possibility 
that what was being shared with Jesus on that day had been made up. That instead of being an actual account, it would have been in the parlance of today, fake news designed to evoke a reaction. There's a Christian missionary of the past named Ibn al-Salibi who expressed something of that idea when he wrote about this scene. This event gave some of them an opportunity to tempt our Lord. They sent the report to him to see what he would answer. For if he said in response, this killing is a clear case of injustice and oppression, they would then defame him before the Roman governor, claiming that he was overstepping the law and that his teachings violated that same Roman law. In other words, that those who brought Jesus this report were offering an account that really could not have been collaborated, just as some of the charges in political commercials are left hanging in the air and instead was simply brought to him to see how he would react. It's a tale I heard years ago of a company that was growing rapidly. The president of the firm brought in the vice president for public relations and said to her, there's somebody that's trying to buy our company. And if they succeed, you and I will be out of a job. Here's what I want you to do. Somehow, I want you to get up the price of our stock so that it'd be too expensive for this group to buy us. I really don't care what you do. I just want you to get it done. Two days later, the stock was already up 14 points. And so the president brought back in his VP to say, this is wonderful. What did you do? And she said, well, I I started this rumor and I think Wall Street must have liked it. And he said, "Well, well, what was that rumor? And she said, well, I told them you were leaving the company. Now, if in fact the people who came to speak to Jesus on that day long ago had brought him a rumor, it wasn't for a financial purpose, but for a political one. They wanted him to get in trouble with the Roman officials so that they would no longer have to deal with them. And yet Jesus didn't really challenge whether or not the story was true, but instead very skillfully avoided a trap that had been set for him when he said, unless you repent, so will this happen to you. That's a harsh response for us and a confusing one to understand. And perhaps one way to get at the heart of it is to be reminded of the two occasions when he gave that same answer. For the first question that he posed, certainly knew of the subjugation of the Jews by Roman authority when he said, do you think these Galileans who died are worse than other Galileans? And then as he went forward and recalled the tragedy at Siloam, before even speaking really to the general interpretation by Jewish leadership that it was a sign of punishment from God, he said, do you think These were worse sinners than all others living in Jerusalem. And only then, after both of those questions, did he again say, 
No, but unless you repent. And maybe, maybe in that moment, Jesus was calling upon that group and those who would hear his words later to avoid some of those other traps that can be set for us. Kenneth Bailey, who was a Presbyterian minister who spent decades living in the part of the world where Jesus walked, hears this scene in that kind of light. And he describes times over the years when he has shared this biblical scene with some students in the Middle East. And he said, whenever I do that, Students marvel that Jesus was not physically attacked on the spot. The call for repentance is thrown in the face of nationalistic enthusiasts. Those who fight for a just cause, Bailey said, often assume that the struggle for the cause makes them righteous. It does not. The more intense the struggle for justice, the more the oppressed tend to assume their own righteousness. Jesus' speech, he continued, should not be read simply as a rejection of the nationalistic struggle. Rather, he seems to be saying, at the least, you want me to condemn evil in Pilate. I'm not talking to Pilate. Pilate is not here. I'm talking to you. Evil forces are at work in your movement that will destroy you, Pilate or no Pilate. You must repent. Or all of you will be destroyed by those forces. Among those who struggle for justice, he concludes, there develops this attitude, we are the angels and they are the devils. Blessed is the movement, he said, that is willing to listen to a courageous voice quietly insisting, there are devils among us and angels among them we must repent. Human beings have always been prone to gather together in like-minded settings to say we are right and they are wrong. It occurs in matters of politics and in religion. It occurs when people come up with a solution for some societal woe facing us and are convinced that the other point of view is completely wrong. That is not a new human dynamic. And perhaps that is what Jesus was addressing in those words long ago, as this reminder that wherever we find ourselves in life's journey, there is always occasion when we need to repent. Lauren Winner, in her book, Girl Meets God, tells of a time at an early age when she learned that lesson. She said, my mother taught me from the earliest years how to write a proper thank you note, how to set a table, and how to tell someone when I had done something wrong. That last lesson was particularly grueling, she said. And it came one day when I returned from kindergarten I was wearing my new green rain slicker, which I loved, and which I liked to wear even when the weather was beautiful. And I pulled out my pocket a quarter and handed it to my mother, and she said, Lauren, where did you get this? 
did you forget to buy milk today? And I said to her, no. I found it in Mrs. Smith's desk. I wasn't embarrassed, she said. I didn't feel like I had done anything wrong. Mrs. Smith had asked me, the teacher's pet, and Christine, second pet, to clean out her desk drawer during recess, and I had found the quarter then. Well, my mother grabbed my green slicker and steered me toward the car, and we drove four miles to Ira B. Jones Elementary. I looked it up. It's in Asheville, North Carolina. I walked back into the classroom, and Mrs. Smith said, well, Lauren, did you forget something? And my mother said, no, she has something to tell you. And so I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out the quarter, and I handed it to her. And I said, I took this from your desk today. I'm sorry. Mrs. Smith smiled. She got up from behind her desk. She came over and hugged me and said, it had to be hard for you to come back to school this afternoon. I appreciate you telling me what you have done, and I forgive you. The next week, Winter said, Mrs. Smith asked me to clean out her desk drawer again. In writing of that latter occasion, she said this, I think God is a little like Mrs. Smith, she said. I think God forgives us the way that Mrs. Smith did. Only a fool, God, or a saintly kindergarten teacher would allow a known, convicted, desk drawer quarter thief to tidy her desk not seven days after the first crime. Mrs. Smith did, though, because she believed that repentance had been done. I was truly sorry. She had truly forgiven me, and that was all there was to it. On a day long ago, Jesus made clear that the times of hardship that we encounter are not signs of God's punishment. And yet in the midst of those same moments, there can be this impetus to once again seek God's grace. And that message is not a rumor. Actually, it is not even news to anyone who have taken on the name of Jesus for themselves. But simply this reminder that as we continue to journey with him, our task is not to prove to others that we are right, but rather to repeatedly take steps to make sure we are right with God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we remain humbled by that amazing and undeserved gift. Help us even as we claim it for ourselves, that we might extend it to others, that together we will yet draw closer to your intention 
from the beginning. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.